Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Dwight Howling's contemporary Western thriller series starring Nick Drake owes its success to its readers, who are vocal and clamouring for the next book. So they'll be cheering that book number four, The Whisper Soul, is out now. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Dwight explains how he sees writing as a collaboration and agrees with fated author John Cheever who once said, I can't write without a reader, it's precisely like a kiss, you can't do it alone. We're delighted also to be offering a Nick Drake giveaway, two ebook copies of The Sorrow Hand, the first book in the Nick Drake series to two lucky readers. Details of how to enter the draw can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com, or on Facebook. Offer closes April 4, so enter now. You'll also find a full transcript of the episode there as well, with links to Dwight's books. And while you're there, leave us a comment too. We love to hear from our listeners. But now, here's Dwight. Hi there, Dwight, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well... Thank you, Jenny, and it's really a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad to be on your podcast. I also want to thank everyone listening in, uh, because it's really readers that have gotten to me to transition from writing nonfiction to fiction, and what I always like to tell readers is one thing, and that is to quote the great American novelist John Cheever, I can't write without a reader. It's precisely like a kiss. You can't do it alone. Oh, that's just wonderful, actually. And this podcast is, we try and target it for readers rather than other writers. When I looked at the idea of doing a podcast, I thought there were quite a lot of podcasts there for other writers, but I couldn't see so many that were really for readers. So um, that's just really appropriate. And it's a good place to start because we know that you we were you were and are still probably a very successful nonfiction writer doing travel and nature books. But how did you get to that switch to fiction? How was it the readers who helped you to to make that change? Well, the change really wasn't an aha moment for me when I decided to close the book on nonfiction and open a new one writing crime fiction novels. I see writing as a journey and and I'd always been moving in the direction of fiction. As a nonfiction writer, I wrote mostly for magazines rather than newspapers. And that allowed me to exercise more voice and use experiential viewpoint. But at the same time, I was writing nonfiction. I was also writing personal essays and short stories based on those experiences and observations and the people or characters I met along the way. Uh, Some of those made their way into print and literary journals and the like, and even won an award or two of those, those essays and those short stories. In fact, a small literary publishing house in Georgia Uh, called Snake Nation Press, actually published them all in a collection. That was sort of my first bent into fiction uh, publication. And then when I was writing nonfiction books on nature travel, I was also working on a novel. I think most writers are doing that. And in my case, I was writing more than one at a time. And this was before the advent of indie publishing, when the only way to get a novel published was to get an agent and have that agent shop your work for you. 
I did that. I landed a top New York agent and I thought the bestseller list was right around the corner for me. Uh, the agent and I'd have lunch or phone calls and he was always saying, you know, hey, patience is the name of this game. But self-doubt really set in after one particularly long stretch of not hearing from him. Uh, it wasn't for another couple of months, months that I discovered he'd actually dropped dead at his desk earlier in the year. So, so, but right around that same time, San Francisco Lit Quake, which is this great gathering of writers and readers, and they were holding their annual festival in San Francisco. And I attended a workshop on indie publishing. Uh, and right then I learned that the idea of being in control of everything about seeing a novel through from the, the concept of it to writing it, to editing it, to cover design, to publishing, to marketing, that really appealed to me. And um, that was it. I've never looked back. Oh, that's fantastic. So we will talk a bit about your nonfiction work a little bit later on, but we're really focusing on your mystery and suspense today. So you've got two series going. You've got um, Nick Drake and you've got Jack McCall. Now, as far as I know, Nick, you've got three books out and a fourth one coming very soon. And Jack is also still going. But the most recent book that you've got actually out right now that people can find is Nick Drake number three, The Shaming Eyes, isn't it? Uh, yeah, you're right. And uh, The Shaming Eyes came out last July. Uh, since releasing The Sorrow Hand, which was the first in the series a year earlier, I've really kept my boot planted firmly on the gas pedal in writing this series. Uh, the fourth in the series, The Whisper Soul, will be released in a couple of weeks on March 10th. Um, there's a few reasons for this breakneck pace, and one is the characters themselves. Uh, they're speaking to me really loud and clear right now, and as soon as one story's finished, the characters are telling me about the next. The second reason are my readers. They read a lot faster than I can write, and <laughs> boy, they're not shy about telling me that via email, pay, Facebook posts, I mean, even in reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. They're saying, hey, we're we're ready for the next. Uh, the third reason is I love doing this. I love writing. I love connecting with readers and hearing what they think. I love the online community I'm part of. Uh, it's a big international community of other writers, uh, bloggers like you, editors, photographers, uh, cover designers, and of course, readers. Um, momentum is an important component in each of the Nick Drake novels, and, and I'm striving to mimic that in my writing habits as well. That's fantastic, yes. So Nick is a Vietnam vet who's back from the war. So the books are set in the late 60s, although they have a very contemporary feel. It's funny to think for me to think of the late 60s in some genres that's regarded as historical fiction. But even though it's set in the late 60s, it doesn't really feel like a historical novel. And he, he's escaping PSTD by being a wildlife ranger in Oregon. It's a setup that gives you tremendous scope for both high action as well as some telling personal and social commentary. Tell us how Nick came about as a character. Well, Nick Drake is really an embodiment of people I know and love, both family, friends, and people I met while traveling or writing nonfiction, both people living and dead. Um, I grew up in the late 60s, too, and we all know people like Nick. We all see parts of him in ourselves people who have experienced great heights, fallen to great depths, people who have loved and lost and learned to love again, uh, people who have a moral code that helps guide them when facing good and evil. In, in Nick's case, he's a decorated soldier in a war without rules. He, he blames himself for the death of all the men in his squad, 
And their deaths led him to become an addict, where he wound up being held at Walter Reed Hospital for treatment of what is now called PTSD. Uh, wasn't called that back then, but someone saw the inherent good in him and threw him a lifeline. And paying that forward allows him to help others and in doing so, reclaim the humanity lost in war. And it's lovely the way that he's developing as a character through the series. And in book three, you left the ending quite uh, intriguingly open on two fronts, both in his work front, whether he was going to stay doing the thing he was doing or whether he might be getting a change, and also in a relationship with Gemma, the woman. He's much more open emotionally by book three than he was in the first one, isn't he? He is, and and I... I'm trying to grow him as much as I'm growing the other characters. I, I'm a, I like to read too, and and I get a little bored with characters that are too predictable and stay the same. Uh, in our own lives, we're always growing. At least we're trying to grow, or we hope we grow. And and Nick's doing that. He's coming from a place of trauma. He's he's trying to find himself. The characters around him are also growing at the same time. He's interacting with them. There is a love interest, as you mentioned there, with Gemma, who's a, a large animal veterinarian, uh, her father, who's a crusty old deputy sheriff from the area, and also the uh, Paiute uh, people who live there. So growth is a fundamental part of the character and a fundamental part of the story. And as you mentioned in The Shaming Eyes, it is left a little open in, at the end, but uh, uh, in the new one, the same is true in uh, it's called the Whisper Soul. So I hope it drives readers to, you know, want to see what happens next if they fall in love with the characters. Yes, it did occur to me that Nick is actually a perfect romance hero in the sense that he's a sort of guy many, many women want to kind of take in hand and help or rescue or whatever, isn't he? And I can see it actually being a crossover um, success in the romance field as well. Well, I think romance is part of life, isn't it? And the interaction between all people, uh, you know, comes down to emotion, love, feeling. And Nick is not immune to that. And it helps him with his own growth and healing from being in a place uh, at war where men and women, women also served in Vietnam, uh, were asked to put their humanity aside and do inhumane things to other humans. To come back from that place, you have to rediscover your humanity. And it's again, something you really can't do on your own. You need other people to do that with you. If there's romance involved in that, so much the better. Yeah, yeah. And the the setting that you have for this series is also, I think, it's rather lovely and poignant. I mean, you have a lot of beautiful, um, descriptions of the of the setting but it is quite a remote remote part of Oregon it's a county which is only the fifth least populated county in the U.S. and you make the observation that it is about the same size as Vietnam which has a certain poignancy as well about it what drew you to Harney County? Well, I discovered the beauty and mystery of Harney County many, many decades ago. Uh, my folks had a place in nearby uh, Klamath County, which is also in Oregon, and and that served as a great base for me to launch hiking and camping trips uh, throughout Oregon, and that's how I found Harney County. It's, it's close by. Uh, later, when I earned my degree in journalism at the University of Oregon, uh, the campus is in Eugene, 
and Eugene is on the rainy side of the state. The Cascade Mountains divide the state between the wet side and the dry side. Well, the dryness and heat of the high lonesome of Harney County was always beckoning. Uh, then there's the rich cultural diversity um, of the county itself. It's sparsely populated, but it has a really rich uh, communities from the Paiute to the multi-generations of settlers and ranchers. Uh, there's a large Basque community there. And all of that is, is make for great characters. And then there's just the sheer beauty of the landscape. I mean, to me, to soak in a natural hot springs way out in the middle of nowhere, you know, be, beneath the night sky that has more stars showing in it than grains of sand in the desert around you. Well, it doesn't get any better than that. No, it doesn't. Um, I wondered if it was a, an area that you had personally, you know, hiked and tramped in it because it, it comes through very strongly. Yes, it, and uh, I, I love there, love it there. I go there often. I live in California. Uh, I'll be going up there in a few weeks uh, during uh, the spring. Uh, Harney County is like the center for the bird migrations that go through. Uh, there's a natural uh, wildlife refuge there around Malheur Lake. Millions of birds fly through there. Uh, it's a great gathering of both wildlife, also people from all over the world go there. Uh, so it's just got so much going on. It. Uh, the hiking is great, being in the desert, the wildlife. You can see everything from pronghorn, also called pronghorn antelope, uh, to, to deer, mountain lions, uh, and of course, uh, just the desert landscape of sagebrush, uh, juniper trees, blowing tumbleweeds. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You've mentioned a couple of times the Paiute people and that thread is seems to me to be coming more prominent, certainly in The Shaming Eyes. It's a very significant part of the story. Was it difficult researching that side of things? There's a great um, literature about the Paiute. Of course, the Paiute themselves are great storytellers, uh, and they uh, are very helpful. I also weave in some other of the uh, local American Indian tribes. Again, I'm writing in the 60s and and that's where the books are set. The term, the terms like Native American really wasn't in, in parlance then. Uh, but the other people I talk about are uh, the Klamath people who live nearby. I introduced a character at the end of The Shaming Ice, becomes a character in the uh, prominent position in the, in the next book, The Whisper Soul. Also the Washoe people who live in, in uh, Northern California. The thing, I try to mimic the books a bit on the way the Paiute tell their own stories. They call themselves Numu in their language, but they're known as great weavers. Uh, they're a hunter-gatherer uh, bands of people that roam throughout the Great Basin. And they create these beautiful baskets for carrying food and water and backboards for carrying their babies. And they use a variety of natural materials for these creations, like strips of willow or sumac and tanned hides and, and dried grasses. and each of these things, these materials, and each item they weave tells a story about them, their traditions, and their culture, and the land in which they live. And that's what I'm trying to do, too, is to take all the elements, the natural elements in the region, the people, the stories that the, the Paiute tell, and, and help use those to tell the story about Nick Drake and the people he encounters in Harding County. Well, that's lovely. 
Um, if readers were interested in doing a Nick Drake tour, so to speak, you know, if they wanted to come to Oregon and see Nick Drake country, is there a, 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 a tour that you would suggest to them? A lot of the travel in Harney County is best done uh, by foot, by horse, or by vehicle. I think the easiest thing to do if people are coming from great, great distances away is to somehow get themselves to an airport close by. There's not one in the main town of Harney County, which is Burns, unless you fly privately or by air taxi. But in nearby uh, Redmond, which is over by Bend, Oregon, you can fly in there. You can rent a four-wheel drive vehicle. In two hours, you're in Harney County and Burns. Burns is a great jumping off part, uh, point for the rest of the county. It's kind of the town, the biggest town, uh, population of 2,500. From there, you can make treks down to the wildlife refuges like Malheur Lake. You can go a little further south down to the Hart Mountain Wildlife Refuge. A lot of these are self-directed, but they also have individual guides and trips that you can get. They're easily found online. Uh, Self-directed trips are what I usually do, but I also like to go to the wildlife refuges because I can meet other people there at the visitor centers or out tramping around looking at birds or, or whatnot, hiking. And you can go camping almost anywhere. There's camping sites around. There's also small guest inns. And it's just a great place to get away from it all. It's remote. Uh, the people are friendly, and uh, the scenery is nonstop. Oh, that's fantastic! And then, just completely switching um, style, you've got Jack McCall. Are you still writing the Jack McCall series? I haven't written Jack McCall since I finished the fourth book. Which, uh, right from that, I went into uh, the Nick Drake novel series. And I'd gone to a point after four books in the Jack McCool series where I felt I left Jack McCool and his family in a really good spot. Uh, he's, a, he's such an interesting character, and he's so different than Nick Drake. And the time is different. The settings are different. Uh, the Jack McCool capers are set in San Francisco in modern time. He's a con artist or a recovering con artist. And along the way, he always gets involved in solving crimes. When I first started that series, I was drawing upon the past what I used to like to read when I when I was when I was growing up and stuff. I love the Thin Man series. I, you know, I liked later I liked reading the Carl Hyacin books. Uh, I used to like sort of the uh, It Takes a Thief series, things like that where you have humor, you have a lot of place as a character, you've got interaction, a light banner, the violence is is fairly minimal. And uh, bad guys get to come up on, and they all made for great stories. But the biggest character in all four of those books is the city of San Francisco. And that's what I was really trying to shine a light on. And on all the diversity that's there, all the difference, all the foods, uh, the street scene, the action that's happening there, uh, whether it's from sports culture to counterculture to the great uh, arts culture there. Uh, that's what was happening. But again, since uh, Shake City, which was the last one I wrote in that series, uh, I haven't gone back there. That I don't close the door to it. I'm not saying that I won't. But for now, the Nick Drake characters in those stories have really got a hold of me, and it's, it's hard to turn my back on them. 
Oh, that's great. Yes, while you're flowing, it's important to keep it going, I think, isn't it? Yeah, Jack is very sort of urban, you know, flip, mouthy, and and lots of smart one-liners, and it's sort of quite different from the the more intense spiritual meditative uh, aspect, the underlying aspect with Nick. And it's terrific that you could do both so successfully, really quite contrasting characters and styles, and, you, and yet you can comfortably do both, which is fantastic. How did you come across Jack? What what made you start with Jack? Well, I think um, Jack is a little bit of, again, people that I know, people that have been hustlers. And, and I'm not a con artist, but as a freelance writer all my life, there was always a little bit of a hustler in me as well, trying to make a buck as a writer. What could I do to get out there and convince somebody to to pay me money to go on assignment, uh, to travel to the ends of the earth, to write about nature and natural history. Uh, and there's just that sort of, okay, I've got to get somebody to, to do that, uh, be a publisher or a magazine editor, uh, had to tell them a good story. There's a little bit of a con in there too, because you never write quite sure what the story is going to be when you get there, but you can paint the picture, sell them on it, get there, and then deliver it at the end. So a little bit of that was in there. Uh, the other characters in the book are people I know. I have a character in there called Hark, who uh, is sort of Jack McCool's right-hand best friend, sidekick. And when I was younger, I used to work uh, in during high school and stuff, uh, worked at an auto paint and body shop. And there were a lot of harks there, guys that were into cars and guys that knew about painting cars and lowriders. And Hark is a lowrider, and there's a good lowrider culture from my background. And I drew that into the thing. And so people I know, and I know the city really well, San Francisco. I've lived there. Uh, and it's, uh, it's great to sort of rediscover it as a writer and walk down its streets, uh, see the people, go to cafes, uh, listen to the music and put that into a book. Yeah, yeah. In a recent blog post, you you hint that writing might be even in your genes because you've got writers in your immediate family going back to your grandfather, haven't you? And you, you told a tale online about your mother reporting on a meeting with Raymond Chandler, one of the great names of noir fiction. So I wonder if you could tell us about that colourful background you've got. Yes, well, my... Mother's father, my grandfather, who I'm named after, his name was Dwight Mitchell Wiley. And he was a short story writer back in the 30s and 40s. He wrote for the Saturday Evening Post and McCall's and, and periodicals like that. His stories, his genre was light, romantic, humorous pieces. Uh, and he was good at it. I mean, they're just great stories for the time. Uh, one day the, uh, call from Hollywood came and, and he was hired to write a, a screenplay and he became part of the Paramount scribes. And among them also was Raymond Chandler, the great detective writer, uh, Philip Marlowe's creator. And they would hang around and together. And my mother tells the story of them in their bungalow waking up in the morning and there was Raymond Chandler asleep on the couch still wearing the white gloves he 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 liked to wear when he played poker and drank gin and uh, it was just this fabulous story and that always stuck with me about 
this romantic idea of the writers, you know, living in in Hollywood and writing screenplays and writing for magazines or writing novels. No doubt it had an influence on me. And uh, whether I inherited the talent from my grandfather or not, I don't know. But uh, uh, it makes for good memories, that's for sure. Sure. And have you any ambitions yourself to perhaps do screenplays or scripts sometime? I'm pretty comfortable writing novels. I'm very comfortable writing short stories and magazine pieces. I've never written a screenplay. I wouldn't say no to it, but I've got my hands full right now working with Nick Drake and his group up in Harney County, and uh, that's keeping me pretty busy. Sure. Look, turning to your wider career, um, is there one thing you've done, perhaps more than any other, that you'd say was the secret of your success? There's probably people listening who have got ambitions to write, what would you advise them to do? This was a hard lesson for me uh, to learn. Uh, I eventually did learn it, and I think it came a little late in my life, but is to get out of your own way. It's too easy to tell yourself that you shouldn't do it, you can't do it, don't do it. If you've got the drive to write, You just have to write. You have to trust yourself. You have to believe in yourself and do it and get out of your own way to do it. The other thing is, is you can't write alone. There's always this image of the writer in the garret all by themselves writing away. Well, part of that's true. You do have to churn out the words. You do have to create it. You're a better writer if you involve other people in it. I'm very fortunate to have found other writers and other readers who wanted to be part of what I call my ARC team, my advanced reader copy team. And when I finish a manuscript, I send it to them, call them beta readers, whatever you want to call them. And they read it and they get back to me with comments, feedback. Uh, It's terrifically helpful. I couldn't do it without them. Uh, They'll point out things where the, you know, I'm factually inaccurate or the story bogged. Or, of course, they're also encouraging, which we all love to hear. And that's very important, too. So I think just just do it. Just get out of your own way. Write. If you love to write, write every day, too. It doesn't matter what you're writing. Just write and get it on paper. Get it on your computer screen. Dictate it. However it works best, just do it. That's fantastic. Look, turning to Dwight as reader, because this is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and it's predicated on exactly the sort of readers you have, the ones who are fairly voracious, like to read series, and want to hear about the next book. Were you a binge reader, or are you a binge reader yourself? And who do you binge read? Who would you recommend to others as as good people to look, look at? It's funny because when I'm writing what I'm writing now and writing crime fiction, I don't read the stuff that I'm writing about or I love to read that I always used to read. Now I'm reading when I'm writing fiction or writing crime fiction, I read nonfiction. I I read histories and I read literature. I don't read other crime writers. And I guess that's part of it because I want to hear my own voice. I want to hear it in my head. But back in the day, yeah, I loved to read the same writer and all their works at once, you know, one after another, like what people are doing now on a Netflix series or something like that, because I think there was a link from each book they did. You know, uh, 
you know, whether it was a Robert B. Parker, whether it was a Raymond Chandler or a Carl Hyacin or a Dashiell Hammett, uh, I can remember as a young person, uh, my mother was a voracious reader. You know, her father was a writer. And she really turned me on to crime fiction. I remember the time she gave me, you know, the first John D. McDonald book I ever read, Travis McGee series, you know. And I had to read them all. I mean, I just sat there, probably to the, you know, detriment of my, you know, education, no doubt, because I'd read all night long and I just read one after another. I couldn't get enough of them. And so I love to binge read like that. Uh, and I still do it. I mean, it's, uh, but not when I'm writing. So right now I'm reading the overstory, uh, reading the overstory, uh, a novel by Richard Powers, big, great sweeping, you know, book one, the Pulitzer was a you know, runner up on the man Booker, uh, and uh, something that takes me a little bit away from what I'm doing. Sure, sure. Circling back and looking over your writing career, is there one thing you've done more than any other that you'd see as the secret to your success? I think discovering a good character in fiction, once you find one and once they're speaking to you and once you're speaking back to them, I know that may sound a little crazy, uh, that's the secret. You have to find that person. There's a little bit of you in them. There's a little bit of other people you know in them, but you become very comfortable with them and you nurture them along uh, as they grow, as the stories develop and you're true to them. That's not to say that you can't change some of the stuff they do or, or have them make mistakes because they have to be real. They have to be believable. People have to have to trust them and for readers to trust a character, the writer has to trust them first and uh, believe in them and, and take them places that carry the readers along with them in their development as they pursue the story, whether it's a crime story where you're trying to solve a mystery or a story about self-discovery, a story about discovery of another culture, another people, a land. Uh, if the reader's right there with you, they're there with you because you're there with the character that you're creating. Sure. And it occurred to me with Nick, too, that um, there'd be a lot of young men coming back from Afghanistan and other wars now who would be experiencing very similar things to what your character Nick experiences. So although it's set in the 60s, it's still utterly relevant for today, isn't it? It really is. I mean, you see it in the the sheer volume, the, the most horrific thing that's happening right now is the high suicide rate among uh, men and women in service, especially mm -hmm. men and women who have served in a combat situation. It's horrifying. What's happening mm -hmm. here? How can mm -hmm. we figure out the cause of this? And what can we do to help people? In Vietnam, that was certainly true. The Vietnam vets had a really rough transition. Uh, right now, uh, a friend of mine is doing uh, work in prisons in California. Uh, he's creating a book uh, told by long-serving Vietnam veteran prisoners as a guide to incoming prisoners, inmates who are coming to prison, how to survive in prison. And their audience is people that have served in Iraq, Afghanistan. They've suffered from PTSD. Uh, they got involved in drugs. They got in, involved in crime. They've been sent to California prisons. This is just in California. I'm sure it's nationwide. 
and and their mentors are veterans from Vietnam that have been there for decades. What's happening here? Uh, we need to figure this out and and help the people. So there is a corollary between the Vietnam War and Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of the veteran experience of the help that they're not getting when they re-enter. And I know that you referred in, in the Drake books to some of the programs where they um, use wildlife or horses or that kind of thing as, as a help in, in getting people re-established. That's true. And that's, uh, I talked about that in, in the shaming eyes and, uh, and the use of wild horses, especially there are uh, groups that have been working with uh, combat veterans that have suffered from PTSD or having a hard time uh, re-entering and, and using wild horses as a, as a way t- to r- reach them so that they're caring and feeding for another living being. Again, it gets to the point of rediscovering or reclaiming uh, your humanity, uh, the humankind aspect of of what's at risk, obviously, in war. And so wild horses have been a tremendous help in that regard. Uh, you see it in other types of animals as well, and in terms of uh, using dogs and, and, and whatnot. So those things are sort of the bright spot where, where we as a society are, are reaching out to, to our uh, men and women who have, who've served the country. Sure, sure. I did wonder myself, but it seems not. I wondered if you'd had military experience yourself because you tell the story so well that you're just left with that question as to whether you have served yourself. I have not. Uh, my main experience with with war really came from my father who served in World War II. Um, as a kid, uh, I can remember hearing my, my father's own uh, issues trying to deal with the aftermath of serving in World War II. He was a decorated uh, officer. He was he, he mustered out as a captain, but he served in, in the Pacific and Guadalcanal and everything like that. He never talked about the war, ever. He never discussed his combat experience. Um, and his point of view really was, as he was doing his service, it definitely had an impact on him. And his large family um, of his brothers, sisters, cousins, and everything um, only he and, and his cousin um, served in military. My father made it back. His cousin did not. So yeah, th- those yeah yeah. So anyway, as a as a kid growing up and uh, you know hearing him in the middle of the night, not often, but enough to make an impact. Um, and yeah. I have a yeah. brother-in-law who is working um, and has worked for a long time uh, with Vietnam vets, Afghan vets, Iraq War vets. Uh, he's a psychotherapist. Uh, I credit him with a lot of the work in my book, uh, helping me with the research and identifying causes, effects, outcomes, what's real, what's not with people with PTSD. Again, back then it was called something else. Uh, it went from shell shock to uh, battle fatigue to combat fatigue. In Vietnam War, it was more combat fatigue, but all the same thing, the trauma that happens and, and how people have to uh, be helped with that. Sure. Look, we, we are coming to the end of our time together, so just let's take stock. Where are you up to in terms of your work for, say, the next 12 months? What have you got in store in terms of your program for the next 12 months? Right. So right now I'm at the at the very end of the manuscript 
with the Whisper Soul. Uh, my ARC team has gotten back to me. Uh, the proofreader's editing is, is done. Now I'm in the fun part of putting it together in a book farm. I've got the cover all designed and ready to go. I'll be launching that and doing the, uh, the get out the word part of that aspect in it over the next couple of weeks. Uh, the fifth Nick Drake is already titled and arced. Uh, when I first started this series, I had a burst of something, creative juice or whatever you want to call it, where I I set out five or six of the of the first in the series uh, titles, uh, brief sort of thumbnails of what the books are going to be about. So I'll be launching right into writing number five uh, as soon as this one is hitting the market. Uh, and from that, number six would will hopefully follow. It's a it's an interesting thing. I have them. I did. <laughs> you can make idea a verb, uh, but arc. But I never closed the door on what could happen because I found that once you start a book, some characters might pop up that take a bigger role. Some action might happen that takes a bigger role. Some things that you thought were going to happen didn't work out at all, and you and you jettison. You have to be very flexible in this process of writing novels. So that's what I'll be doing uh, for the foreseeable future is hanging with Nick, keeping him going. He keeps me going and all the characters that go with him. That's fabulous. It also probably is the right time to mention that we're going to have a great little competition going where we're going to offer a couple of your ebooks of the first book in the series, The Sorrow Hand, all the details of that will be on the, the blog post with the, when the podcast is posted. But um, I'm really grateful to you for letting us have a couple of those copies to be able to spread the word. My pleasure. And again, thank you so much for having me on your pod. This is a terrific opportunity and experience and really appreciate it. Just before you go, tell everybody where readers can find you online. It's very easy. I'm at DwightHoling.com. That's D-W-I-G-H-T-H-O-L-I-N-G.com. And I'd love to hear from readers and other writers as well. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, uh, and the usual places. But DwightHoling.com is, is an easy way to see uh, the work. And Facebook is always great to see comments. And I love getting comments. Fire away. That's wonderful, Dwight. Look, thank you so much. It's great to have had you on board. And we will be posting this very sort of mid to late March. So it'll be very close to when your next book comes out. Terrific. That's wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at 
at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.